You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. That is such a cool song. I feel I should let, let it keep going and give you more people, but I'm so super organised this morning that I've already got my little bit of paper in front of me. It is Sunday morning. It is two minutes past ten. And I'm Dr Doolittle, and I'm pretty excited about our lineup. We've got a great array of topics to warm your Sunday morning, and doesn't it require warming? I was just boasting that I've had this at uh, this current my current car for about two years, and this morning, for the first time ever, I saw a snowflake on the dashboard, as in, you know, an electronic one telling me that it was, and I looked it up, telling me that it was below two degrees, and therefore the car had instituted some sort of anti-skid thing. Not that there was any snow in Melbourne, but still, it's Mine pretty did. exciting. Did you have one too? Yeah, I did. Melis, you're nodding too. Did you have a snowflake? No, I just put the heater on. No, suffer. No <laughs> snowflake for you. Hey, before I get you guys talking, I better tell everyone who you are. Joining us in the studio this morning, we have a special guest, a Melbourne barrister and Queen's counsel, Neil Murdoch. Neil is here to give us a lawyer's perspective on informed consent. Just how much information is enough and what are the traps? Also on board, you've already heard his um, quick comment, is our ever-thoughtful psychiatrist, Dr Mellis. He's got the gut in his sights this morning, and not the usual stuff about ulcers and diets. No, he's going to tell us about how the gut can influence our emotional state. Is it time to think more broadly about the mind? Is it time to take the discussion outside the brain? Also in the studio is Dr Capri, our general practitioner and women's health expert. Dr Capri is... She's looking at me with a funny look on her face. <laughs> Dr Capri is champing at the bit to get into a discussion about improving communication and clinical interactions. Either way, we're all here. Let's say hello to our guest first. Up, Neil, how are you? Um, very well, thanks. Thanks Good for morning to you. coming in on this freezing day. Did you have a snowflake on your car? I had snowflakes and I had ice on the windscreen. Oh, so you, oh, you don't use boiling water, do you? You use cold water to get the ice off. Did you cold water it off? Uh, well, the kettle had boiled but some time previously, so oh, right. it was okay. Because I think it cracks your glasses. That's the idea. If you, The theory, isn't it? That's the risk. Probably given to, to rapid expansion and contraction. Right. Yes, How some is just this? Don't tolerate it. I mean, radiotherapy. You get advice about get scratching. <laughs> off. If, look, if you know people who aren't listening, text them, ring them up, tell them that sort of the breadth of the discussion is huge. Capri, what about yeah. you? How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. Nice to be here. You would. Uh, you're coping? You're coping with the cold? I'm I cold hate, I hate the cold, and yes, I saw that little icon on my dashboard and I thought, well, what the hell am I doing out amongst this cold weather? But, of course, had to be here. It sort of makes me excited, though, because, you know, it's sort of something different. I get a little bit overexcited about these things. What about you, Melis? How are you? I, I, I had a hawk icon. Now, I don't know why a hawk icon uh. would suddenly appear on a Sunday morning and me then in this outfit. But uh, For yeah. listeners who aren't familiar, Melis is Hawthorne's... Number one supporter, almost. Oh, you've even got a Hawthorne top on. Hey, can I I I wasn't going to say it, but since you've noticed, yes. (laughs) Can I tell you, this is again, you know, apropos of absolutely nothing. I had one of the most cool cool parenting experiences last night. My son's been playing soccer for years, and last year he played with his kid called Stefan Zinni from school. He's been playing with him for years. Great player, you know, fantastic in the school team, loves playing with him. Stefan this year got recruited to the Melbourne City Youth team and he got at the end of the season which was a month or two ago he got 
uh, you know, taken up by the senior Melbourne City team. And last night, Melbourne City played um, Manchester City in a friendly oh, in the yes, Gold Coast, yes. and he got to go up there, and then they put him on in the second half. So this kid, who's been playing soccer with my son, and I've seen him sat around, had coffee, chatted to his dad over the games, you know, watched him run around for the last few years and grow up. There You're he is playing dropper. some of the... Yeah, now become a name <laughs> dropper. He's, there he is playing against some of the biggest soccer players in the world, Yaya Toure and Nasri. He tackled Nasri. Here he is, a kid who was at school last year playing on the lumpy, bumpy oval um, on cold, windy Melbourne mornings. There he is tackling a player who gets about $100 million a year. If he had kicked him in the ankles, he probably would have got... This is the moment he becomes a legend. How is that? So I'll be dropping his name now, hopefully, for the next 10 years. Yeah, I know Stefan Zinni. Yeah, I remember when he was a kid. Yeah, I taught him everything he knows. You're just going to now watch if your son will still talk to you. (laughs) My son was so impressed. Hey, um, why don't we jump into some topics, Melis? I've got it in my head that you've got some catch-up for us. I've got an amazing piece of catch-up which is heartened my heart and today I have to also say heartened my uh, digestive system (laughs) as well as brains. It's an article about the Tufts University experiment of teaching uh, new residents on how to improve communication by, believe it or not, by self-reflection. Now, I look in mirrors all the time. Sorry? I look in mirrors all the time. <laughs> Some people no. say I'm excessively um, involved in reflection. Well, is that what you mean? This is precisely the point that most of us as doctors have thought of self-reflection in a sort of narcissistic way. You know, mm. I am better than best and so on. This is actually a totally different take on self-reflection about modesty and humility and learning and increasing one's knowledge. Oh, my least favourite oh. sort of self-reflection. <laughs> it is ex- incredible. And what they did is they took 33 uh, trainees in a family... Uh, Tufts University Family Medicine Residency Program uh-huh. at Cambridge Health Alliance, and they asked them to write open-ended n- uh, c- quotes on their self-reflection with patients. And lo and behold, they uh, obtained over 750 of these self-reflections and submitted it to what is known as a qualitative research design. That is not asking how many words they did, but what themes emerged, the quality and they actually obtained three major areas of qualities and it had to do with the two-way interaction that they reflected on, for example oh, I think I should have spent a little bit more time developing trust with the adolescent before I launched into shall I prescribe the pill or not that sort of thing. So this was a two-way interaction theme the next one had to do with the um, subtleties of communication saying maybe I didn't notice how agitated and anxious they were talking about their forthcoming death. Now, you know, this sounds flippant, but in serious clinical consultation sessions, one overlooks the patient's worry and anxiety because one oneself is so anxious Mm. and worried, and we develop a blind spot. Mm. And hence, self-reflection, which by definition happens afterwards... So it is returning to the scene of the moment of these critical incidences. This is where the learning actually occurs. And then finally, the imagery of the growth and development that actually arose during the consultation. So language about you will be better and I've got good hope provided we can 
you know, get over this barrier. Now, I thought this is just such a wonderful, wonderful inspiration that a new generation of residents are learning as part and parcel of their education that self-reflection is inherently good. And hopefully they get marked in exams, so not only will they think it's good, it's essential, because that's the only way we learn about essential things, if we get marked in exams. Well, it's true. And I'll, I'm going to warm your heart even further, Dr oh, Malice, because um, you'll be pleased to know uh, at the at Melbourne Uni, and I'm sure most unis around Australia, it is part of their um, core learning, um, the whole oh. reflect, reflecting on how you interact with patients and communication skills. And um, they have simulated patients who come in, uh, actors obviously, who come in and cry and are angry and respond to um, the way a student interviews them in certain ways and afterwards they reflect on how they may well have done that differently, better, why they got the reaction they did and so yes, it's all happening. Oh, I think it's getting hot in this clinic. I'm so warmed up. (laughs) (laughs) What about um, lawyers, Neil? Because it's the same issue, I reckon, in terms of you know, there's a body of knowledge that everyone has to get over that hurdle to qualify. Same as in medicine. Yet one of the aspects that's so central to how you practice is how you communicate with your client or patient or in whatever the relevance. Do you guys get taught communication? As far as I know, we don't get taught communication at law school, certainly not when I was at law school, which is quite a while ago now. Um, But I, I think when you become a barrister you do the bar readers course as it's called Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of time spent at the bar readers course uh teaching you how to communicate in court uh, and generally and uh, a lot of assessment is done of your ability to communicate and there's a lot of feedback given so that you'll it's all done on a role-playing basis so that you'll pretend that you're presenting something in court or you pretend you're mm. cross-examining a witness who's who might be another member of the reader's cause who might be somebody else but um and then the uh, instructors in the reader's cause will give you feedback about how you went and they also use video uh, recording as a tool so that they can show you what you actually looked like when you're doing what you're doing I think another uh, important way for students and um, young doctors to learn how to communicate and what's effective is to watch other doctors. Um, you know, I say to students mm. when they go on their clinical clinical rotation, you know, steal with your eyes, see what works for other doctors, look at patients' reactions, why did that consultation not go as well, um, how can you use that when you, you know, in your own practice in the future and, and just seeing patients' responses and how doctors deal with certain situations and, and really sort of absorbing why that went well and why that didn't go well. But you know, in a medical one though, at the end of the day, you're mostly just communicating with one person. If you're a barrister, you're commun- Communicating with some with three groups, I'm thinking off the top of my head. The judge, who you have a very different relationship with to whoever you're cross-examining, and if it's a jury, if you, there's a jury, obviously you're communicating with the jury as well. And all three, the levels of communication, you know, you must be simultaneously communicating with all three if all three are there at that one time, which must happen from time to time. And all three would be very different. And the relationships are extremely important with all of them. I reckon it'll be quite a fascinating dynamic Uh, it is and um, there are cases where uh, you you will see barristers trying to communicate with the media too if they're present Mm. and if there's because barristers love an audience more than anything else (laughs) (laughs) you're among friends (laughs) 
<laughs> so you certainly see things that are said and done in court that are done for the benefit of the wider audience. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was laughing at something off off screen, and not not at what you were saying. I think I put you off. Um, yeah, no, it's very interesting. So, um, what's your take home message for this, Malice? Well, I think that this idea of seeing who you're speaking to is. Uh, in retrospect, when you review it, is something akin to becoming a witness to yourself. And as we know in the legal world, witnessing can be on many levels. You can have a naive, a hostile, a cooperative, an expert, and so on. And so we tend to favour ourselves as the... um, put ourselves in the best light, as it were. Mm -hmm. This, I think, highlights that we can become less and less biased witnesses to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the aim, to to become empathic and objective. So not thinking we are great, but that the patient actually comes to benefit. And I think that process requires this retrospective, reflective capacity. You're really talking about the development of insight. Yeah. And that's uh, something we all strive towards i suppose but some find it easier than others and the question is obviously which is the hard bit is can it be taught are you born with insight or you know can can you bring people improve their level of reflection and insight and communication stay tuned because when we get to the gut that is what we're going to touch on beautiful we're segueing already i love it love it You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And right now, we are going to go into our interview of Neil. Um, Let me just shuffle around and find my bit of paper and pass it out to the group so that they know what's going on. This is what would have happened whilst the song was playing, people. This is now production on air. Now, Neil Murdoch is a barrister and Queen's counsel. Neil specialises in professional indemnity litigation, especially medical negligence, and a whole lot of other stuff like insurance and commercial litigation, common law personal injuries, and torts. I love a good tort. I love cream. Is that a cake, a tort, or something? I get confused. Other, and other personal injury and coronial inquests. He, uh, Neil's background is he's, he's, he's trained here in, I think, at Melbourne Uni, if memory serves me correct. He was employed for a while as a solicitor at Phillips Fox and then went to London for a number of years. And then he uh, went off to uh, London to work at Barlow, Lloyd and Gilbert for a number of years and then came back to Melbourne. And he went to the bar in 1995. I'm going to get him to tell us what that means in a second. So, look, again, even though you've, we've already welcomed you, we've already had a hello. Formal welcome, Neil. Thank you very much, Diddle. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tone of my questions. They're not very good. Um, but anyway, why don't you get the ball rolling by telling us... Because even though I think probably a third of the audience out there is going to know what a barrister was, I didn't learn what a barrister... difference between a barrister and a lawyer was till I was about 25. I'm slow. Why don't you start the ball rolling by telling us what a barrister is? Well, a barrister is someone who appears in court as a general rule. So uh, I'm a professional advocate. Right. So I stand up in court and I present people's cases for them as best I can. Solicitors, by contrast, uh, typically people who are involved in uh, either the preparation of cases which go to court or in what's called non-contentious business, which is transactions, um, deals, buying and selling property, buying and selling businesses, giving tax advice, whatever Solicitors can go to court, though, can't they? Oh, my word, they can, and they do uh, increasingly often. 
And whenever you go to court, do you ever solicitor, you know, um, what is it, what's it called? Not informing. What is it called when they... In, instructing. 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 So that, right. Does Usually. that always happen? Usually, yeah. And you've also become a Queen's Council or a Senior Council. That's right. What does that mean? Uh, it, uh, so it means I'm uh, a member of the Senior Bar, as it's called, and uh, it's an appointment which some people uh, get, some members of the Bar get, um, usually after they've been at the bar 15 years or more and it's um, more than anything else um, uh, recognition of seniority within the profession and uh, having reached a certain level of expertise and um, experience it's more recognition than anything else. And a pretty cool label too. Yeah, I know, no, Queen's Council. Yeah. See, in medicine, you know, the equivalent is, you know, people walking around claiming that they're legends. You <laughs> at least have, an, you have an independent bar. You know, someone told me, a senior Melbourne lawyer told me you were the hotshot medical law you were the go-to medical lawyer in melbourne now and um yeah and it was a senior lawyer in melbourne when i told them that we had neil murdoch on the show oh he's the go-to guy so what is your like do you subspecialize the same way doctors do yeah we do so what's your area uh my um preferred area is um that of med- medical negligence so if i can i can i do work which involves cases against uh, doctors and hospitals uh, and hospital staff and also allied health practitioners um, when they are sued by patients for allegedly doing the wrong thing. Right. And I, sp- I assume that's because the law's so complex that, you know, you, it's hard to specialise in it. It's hard to know everything. So you end up specialising. That's right. And uh, I don't know much about tax. Um, I don't know much about buying and selling businesses and things that go wrong in that respect. But uh, I like to think that I now know something about the practice of law insofar as it concerns what can go wrong in hospital environments and what doctors can get up to. Yeah, and in fact, that's what you hear this morning. So why don't you get the ball rolling by telling us a little bit about what is meant by informed consent? Well, informed consent is uh, a process whereby a clinician obtains the authorisation of his or her patient to follow a particular course of medical management. And it's the duty of the clinician in obtaining the authorisation of the patient to disclose to the patient important risks and uh, the features of that proposed course of treatment and any other alternative possible course of treatment which might be followed. Um, So when do you have to get it? Like if I prescribe someone antibiotics or just operations? No, it's really any intervention or possible intervention in a patient's clinical course the mm. consent of the patient has to be obtained because something that it seems to me from my legal perspective sometimes doctors forget is that the decisions that have to be made about a clinical course are made by the patient, not by the doctor. True. So, Neil, in my experience in general practice, um, informed consent can be a, pr- a pretty loose concept in in the sense that it's often um, inferred or implied when a patient comes in and says, um, you know, I want this done. For example, I want this lesion frozen off. Um, and how much information you give them about the... the um, 
possible um, side effects and what the procedure involves depends often on the patient, what they want to know, what they their preconceived ideas. And sometimes it's um, it comes down to, oh, look, I, I know all about it, don't worry about it, yeah, I trust you, go ahead. Now, is that is that uh, um, enough if the patient sort of um, gives you that 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 um, uh, they just say go ahead I trust you don't well, know how to put that more yeah well nicely. I think it's like when you give the antibiotics even though you need informed consent it's implied because the patient takes them like I you no one would ever get written informed consent for antibiotics but you'd give the script when they fill it out and pop them in their mouth. That's but they're true. not necessarily asking for it. When they come in for certain procedures, like they want a lesion removed or cryotherapy or even a pap smear, um, they are giving you... It's implied that they consent to that procedure purely by asking for it. And obviously you will give them if there are significant side effects or possible complications. But, um, you know, how far do you have to take that info- information? Well, how the, much is enough? The law would say... for. And really all I can tell you is what the law would say is that it's for the doctor to tell the patient what the material risks of the proposed intervention are. And the material risks, the law says, are those risks which a a reasonable person in the patient's position uh, would attach significance to or the risks which that particular patient the doctor knows or ought to know would attach significance to. Um, uh, it's sort of easy to pronounce that as a legal principle, but I, and I, I know I can see that it would. It's much more difficult in practice and in the context of a, a busy general or any kind of professional medical practice uh, to, to put that into effect. Um, but that, as I say, the law, the, in your example, if somebody comes in asking for a particular intervention, of course the doctor's inclined to assume that they, they know what it is that they're asking for and they know what it is, is that's involved. But I would say it's really still for the doctor to make sure that they really know by saying, now you understand that there are things that uh, might go wrong here and you need to know what they are before you commit to undertaking that course. And if you're doing that and you can see that they're actually not absorbing it and you're showing them pictures, like, for example, we do iron infusions in the practice and one of the significant um, side effects or possibilities is that you get, a, you get um, leakage of that uh, into the skin and you get a tattoo, essentially, that you need you know, multiple laser treatments to get rid of. And that's, so what happened to Dane Swan, that footballer? <laughs> Very low on iron, apparently. So lots, got of, yeah. lots of yeah, yeah just exactly. Just infusions anyway. everywhere. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> that was a total body infusion, <laughs> I think. Um, and I, and we have pictures actually showing you know that, that possibility, and you can see patients say, "Yeah, yeah, where do you want me to sign?" So it's really difficult to know how you've got to keep bringing them back and bringing them back. So at what point do you just have to concede? Well, I think they know what the risks are. Well, you've got to satisfy yourself that they do know that they do understand. Uh, and that's again it's something else that the law requires of doctors in that context is that they um, ensure that the patients do get what it is that's going to happen. Now, just following on from that, that's a fascinating legal concept of material risk. 
And I can see that in procedures like burning off something or administering iron or a procedure, it would have a clearer boundary than in the psychological areas where there's less procedure, the non-procedural risks. And what is the status in the current climate with neuroscience informing material or not material that is with brain scans we now know certain things that we thought were just talk we now know actually has got a material link of what's going on in the brain so in practical terms what do we have to inform traumatized patients about when we start talk therapy because that affects the the material of the brain well it it depends on um, what it is that uh, is involved in talking to them by way of risk, whether um, talking to... Uh, I, I, I've heard about exposure therapy yes. in the context of traumatised um, patients and uh, how exposure therapy can or, uh, worsen the, um, the situation of a traumatised patient. So you would have to explain to them before commencing the, the talking therapy that something that might happen is that the situation could get worse and they need to understand that before they start. Now, I, I appreciate that. How do you actually gauge the standard of do they get it mm. uh, when they're traumatised, which by definition means they're disconnected from their trauma? So you are going to be the agent who introduces them to their trauma they have by definition disconnected from it otherwise it's not trauma it's something overwhelming but maybe not traumatic so you are by exposure in various ways inviting them to give consent which by definition of the condition it's outside of their consciousness well one of the um one of the elements of the process of obtaining informed consent is to have a competent patient, that is to say somebody who's uh, capable of making both legally capable, so they have to be over 18 uh, and they have to have the capacity to make the decision now if they don't have the capacity so if if they're mentally too infirm to be able to do that then it may be that um a guardian has to be appointed, somebody else has to make the decision for them. But these are very difficult areas because you've got somebody who's capable of being rational but um, they are incapable perhaps of understanding the full ramification uh, ramifications of the treatments that proposed. Wonderful. Could I just push the limit on that one? Being in the subspecialty of child and adolescent psychiatry... How does one gauge the competency of a 16-year-old to attend to their own trauma if you're going to, say, in sexual abuse or physical abuse, engage them in a process through talk and drawing and play that will take them back if if the onus is on assessing patient competence? Well, um, I'm not sure I can give a legal answer to that, save that a 16-year-old is not legally competent as such. Um, Well, with parents' consent, they're in individual treatment. Yeah. Um, I think if you have the parents' consent, then... um, 
legally you've probably done enough but i don't i don't think that as a matter of professional practice that would be sufficient you would have to um, engage with the patient him or herself to uh, undertake the process so and, uh, i don't think there's a legal answer beyond that I think it's more a matter of professional assessment as to how you satisfy yourself that um, they understand the implications of what's proposed. So it would be fair to say that it's necessary, obviously, legally to have the parent consent, but it's not sufficient to proceed with the clinical practice. I, I think so, and I think that's more a matter of um, uh, professional consideration rather than legal. I think one of the things that really directed us along this line was a case from many years ago that you often hear quoted, I've heard it quoted on this program many times too, and that's the case of um, Rogers versus Whitaker. And this was a famous case where, you know, really up until this case, at least my impression of um, consent in... I've worked in hospitals my whole life prior to this case. It was about, I don't know, 15 years ago, Neil, Rogers versus Whitaker? 1992s. Oh, goodness, that long ago. So getting on to 23 years ago. My, um, how time flies. Yeah, my, how time flies when you're having fun. And ro- um, up until Rogers versus Whitaker, a lot of consent was done in what I would call a paternalistic way. So what happened was we decided what we thought the patient needed to know and we told them and we rarely gave written information and then off we, and they signed the form and off we went. And what happened in Rogers versus Whitaker, you know, in my 23 year old memory roughly was that a woman went along to have eye surgery done and she had an eye problem in, she had a, a certain needed surgery on one eye. And um, the main issue for her when she went along was she said, I don't want to go blind. Is there any risk to my other eye? And the surgeon said, no, there's no real risk. Now, he knew that there was like a one in, I don't know, 10 million chance of something that they call, I think it was sympathetic ophthalmoplegia, where you get blind in the eye that's not being operated on, rare as hen's teeth. And he thought, I don't want to worry this lady. So he didn't tell her. Mm. But she specifically asked. Anyway, I went to court. Of course he lost. And the judge essentially <laughs> said, the judge essentially said, it's not good enough for you to judge how much to tell. You have to do an assessment of how much mm. to tell. You have to assess the, what the patient wants to know. Now, if the patient says to you, don't worry, doc, like Capri said, I trust you, just go ahead um, as long as you establish that that's really what they want ask the appropriate questions that's fine but if they say no i want to know everything then you've got to tell them everything and i and i guess in your case therefore Melis, it's going to be a process of saying with this 16 year old you know how independent is he or she are they living alone or are they still living with their parents? Are they making other decisions in their life? If you've got their parents' consent, you're still going to want to run through the process of assessing how much they need to know and then acting on that, I would have thought. Don't you reckon? I, I absolutely do. And they're, they're certainly uh, beyond the legal guidelines. We'd have clinical ethical guidelines mm. first to do no harm. Mm. But it is this sort of uncharted territory because where of our specialty is learning about trauma itself. So so we don't actually have a great historical uh, database, as it were, on how young people react to trauma treatment. So we are in an awkward position in informing them in terms of statistics. There are none that are, would be reliable for the individual case. And it would have to, I think, generalise to say, look, in general... Sometimes things have to get a little bit worse than better, but we will maintain the safety and the language that we now use is safe enough, not safety. Can I follow on with an in- another question that's related to that one then for Neil? 
Because, and that's it, you're saying sometimes, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Also, different doctors believe, dif- different clinicians, nurses, doctors, everyone, believe different things. You know, I had a re- an interesting case recently where a prominent Melbourne lawyer busted his Achilles tendon whilst getting on the tram. The tram was on the way to a Melbourne hospital. So he just, he knew he'd done his Achilles immediately. He's probably listening. And uh, he jumps on the tram, goes to this hospital. I wonder if you would mind me telling this story. Maybe I'll start de-identifying. I don't know who this lawyer was. It's too late now. Anyway, um, anyway, he's um, you gone to the hospital. You've supervision from a doctor. Yes, but yeah. anyway, to cut a long story short, he's gone to the hospital and got conflicting advice from um, two doctors. One who believed the pathway was clearly A, Surgery, and the other who believed the pathway was clearly B, conservative, no surgery, rest. And, um, and so, and this, and this is just an illustrative example. Do you get that all the time? One clinician who believes something, so they're going to give different set of risks mm. to another. Like if you get a psychotherapist, for example, who doesn't believe there's any risk to um, psychotherapy, they're not going to tell you that. So this is my uh, question, Neil, is that I think in, in practice... Informed consent and how good that is is in the eye of the beholder. So the patient will have some idea of what they feel informed about and they feel adequately informed to the level they... Uh, whether that be their level of understanding of, of the health information, what the information they feel they need, and, whether, and then the doctor will have some idea as to whether they feel they've adequately informed the patient. And then I imagine when things go pear-shaped, the legal fraternity have another idea about what was adequate informed consent. So how do doctors and patients get into trouble in this? area what kind of things happen that um where this process has sort of gone wrong there are virtually no limits to the ways in which <laughs> How encouraging. doctors can get themselves into trouble so <laughs> encouraging for the barristers yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, oh, would, you would be amazed or perhaps not amazed no. uh, at the variation that exists in this in this area um the, the it's certainly the case that different doctors have different views about what the risks of um, a particular course of, co- a course of management might be. And uh, so there are different views, for example, in relation to whether an, a ruptured Achilles tendon should be surgically treated or conservatively treated. But it's incumbent on the clinician to know what the options are and to explain them to the patient and to explain them to the patient in a way that the patient understands. It's um, often going to be important for the clinician to make a recommendation as to what they think should be done Um, because, of course, the patient really relies on the clinician to give them advice. Um, And... uh, but that doesn't absolve the clinician of the responsibility to explain all of the alternatives and then leave the decision, the ultimate decision, to the patient. And I understand that, uh, of course, there will be some clinicians who advocate strongly a particular course. Others will be much more inclined just to set out the options and say to the patient, you decide. The patient has to decide in every case, but um, that decision will be shaped by the way in which the options are presented. So much is clear. Mm, I see that. 
You know, I see that all the time, especially in our field, um, Mellis, you know, in psychiatry, because, you know, people tend to... A lot of people, you know, the majority of people obviously have broad range of views but some sit in a strong church of psychotherapy and some sit in a strong church of pharmacotherapy mm-hmm. and um i've got to say too i see a lot of patients you know i'm right slap bang in the middle so they come along to me and they get listen here's the pros and cons of medications here's the pros and cons of therapy um what do you want to do they say what do you think and i'll say well look you know most people choose that but you know i'm sitting on the fence where some of my colleagues are very passionate about one or the other yes. and i often think Certain patients, not all patients, really respond to the passionate ones better than the neutral ones like me. And sometimes I'm tempted to push something because I can see they really want to believe. And, you know, and the placebo element involves a lot of belief. You know, the placebo, that, that, those immeasurable aspects of what happens in the um, practice. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think that they're always best served by your neutrals. Well, th- I think this is a fascinating and central part of clinical practice, which by definition we often talk about as working in the matrix of ambiguity. So as soon as someone is passionate and strong on one view, you should suspect that they've left the matrix. Mm. Right. And they've gone into some ideology. Mm. And I want to be in the matrix, just like I want to be in the, <laughs> in the Antarctic vortex. Right now, I'm in a matrix and a vortex. <laughs> I just feel so happy. An Antarctic vortex matrix. Sorry, Melis, I couldn't resist interrupting. Become a Hawthorne fan and you'll get certain. Well, there's no, yeah, there's no matrix there. You go along with me. But that, that is actually the mentality, unfortunately, if you leave the matrix of ambiguity. You get into a win-lose situation. Stay with me and you'll win. Go to someone else and you're likely to get second-rate treatment, in my opinion, which is terrible medicine. And I think one of the options which I actually practice is when I get into to the impasse of feeling I've just left my matrix of uh, ambiguity, I suggest uh, literally to the family, would you like a second, second opinion? opinion? Yeah. yeah, very wise. And, th- and I've been thanked so often with raised eyebrows, like, are you suggesting I go to someone else? And I said, that is what a second opinion is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But at least I have self-reflected, and going back to the early part, that there is a limit to our competency. And to go outside that, I think, is inviting this limitless uh, area of informed consent just breaking down. Thanks. for uh, Any final comments? Do you think, are we on the right track? Oh, I think you're on the right track. Um, but uh, my final comment would be to reiterate something I've already said, which is that the striking thing about informed consent to me uh, is one which um, I think doctors sometimes do lose sight of which is that at the end of the day it's the paint sorry the patient's decision Mm. as to what to do not the doctor's three triple r and uh, who have we got on the panel? We've got our special guest, Neil Murdoch. We've got Dr Capri. We've got myself, Dr Doolittle. And we've got the effervescent. I'm trying to think of some other words. <laughs> effervescent. <laughs> Capri, Haw- help hawk-like. me. Hawk-like. Hawk-like. Whoa. Oh, like yay. Go. Hawk-like. Inspired. <laughs> inspired. I'm going for inspired. Dr Mellis, who is going to tell us about one of the most sort of left field slash exciting left field areas that's hitting the whole of medicine, but especially mental health, recently. Over to you, handsome Dr Mellis. Wow, what an intro. Hard to live up to, but Hawkeye, I shall try to. <laughs> now, this was partly triggered as all good research is by personal 
investment in the topic. And when <laughs> you've got a rumbling tummy, then you want to know what's going on. <laughs> Have I just got irritable bowel, which I always went poo-poo, no pun intended in the past, but now actually thinking maybe there's something more to it, and then lo and behold March edition of our college journal, the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry, March 2015, an article called, listen to this this is actually in a science journal, Pathway in Gut-Brain Communication Evidence for distinct gut-to-brain and brain-to-gut syndromes. Mm. Now, this is a mind-stopper because when we were going through medical school in the archaic days of the last century, there was things above the sort of neck and things below the neck and above was neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, below was thoracic and then below that was the abdomen and uh, genitourinary, gynecological and so on and of course the limbs. Near the twain should meet between any of them when we were training. Oh, sometimes I use my limbs to scratch some of the other parts. Other parts. <laughs> okay. Now, I also had that sort of feeling that when I was training, there was a thing called tummy rumbles, which had a fancy name called borborygmus. Oh, I love borborygmus. <laughs> borborygmus, definition for those listening. Audible bowel sounds. I love it. Isn't that? But what a great word, borborygmite, almost the onomatopoeic version of exactly. it. Exactly. And at that time, back in the uh, dark day, that, that days, that was just noise. Then it became in a subspecialty called psychoanalysis where you pay attention to communications from the patient, a la, as we did in the intro, the two-way interaction. What if the patient's tummy rumbled at the same time yours rumbled and you got synchronous borborygmi? Well, that said, well, you're both relaxing at the same time or you both got irritable bowel syndrome at the same time and you irritate each other. So we were left there with data. Now the question is, from folklore of noise to data to finally are we getting to the stage of knowledge? And then what is the knowledge about borborygmus and borborygmi? And the question here is really raised in this article that not only should we be thinking about how gut and brain react in terms of if you've got anxiety and depression, you're likely to have symptoms of constipation or diarrhea or irritable, the various discomforts. But could it go the other way? Namely, if you've got a primary tummy disorder, and this is where it'll get really interesting, does it actually feed back onto the brain? Because we've always known about a very famous nerve from 200, 300 years ago called the vagus nerve. Oh yeah, I've heard all about that. That's where you gamble and stuff, vagus, yeah? yeah. You gamble and you go and party and stuff. It's in America. In and what happens California? in the vagus stays in the vagus. <laughs> yeah. Are we on a different vagus? All We're on a totally different vagus. This is an extraordinary neural pathway, nerve pathway that goes all the way from the skull and touches everything on the way through the head, through the, the, the nerves in the eyes and the tongue and the cheeks and the eyebrows, all the way down to the diaphragm, very important near the breathing apparatus that links up and everything below. That is the splenic and celiac plexus and when you get knocked in the stomach like really in the centre and you double up, that's your celiac plexus being overwhelmed. So the question obviously arises and in child psychiatry we have a thing called uh, a stomach migraine 
or abdominal migraine. And I was always taught back in the dark days that you had head migraines and you had stomach migraines. Now the question comes up, is it possible that the same mechanisms that causes the constriction of the vessels in the brain are causing constrictions in the stomach vessels and therefore giving the same sort of migranous feeling but located not in the head but in the gut? That's just one example of how in my practice in child psychiatry we have to think, rethink what is a gut migraine? Is this just a local Monday morning tummy upset or something about separation after a lovely warm weekend at home, going to school, school refusal, anxiety, separation, worry about perhaps bullying at school and therefore it's a symptom that is connected between the head and the brain and of course once you get this tummy migraine then of course the distress starts triggering pain pathways all the way up to the head because now we know it's a two-way highway the thing that i just you know i'm just blown away about this whole gut emotions thing it's just how quickly this whole area is developing in real in real times. You know, we didn't even because you've talked about the um, the our, us, our vagus nerve, our brain, our gut. But of course, the other key element of this whole story is the microbiome, which is all the bugs in the in the gut, basically. And you've got more. You you've actually got more. If you count cell for cell, you are more bacteria than you are human yes. cell. And if in DNA to um, weight to weight, you've got more. You're more bugs than you are person. To put it mildly, and this is now hitting us in all these different areas. And the, just to you know, throw a little bit of history. It was only back in the mid nineties, and I love this story because it's an Australian story. And Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. It was a couple of doctors, a pathologist and a clinician in Perth that found that one of our commonest and most difficult to treat conditions, ulcers, was actually significantly caused partly caused by bacteria and so antibiotics became one of the key parts back when i was a junior doctor you got an ulcer and it was pretty much chronic treatment for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. now you know these are curable and they won a nobel prize for it and that was sort of the first and now we've gone on from oh not only do the bacteria in the gut cause that they're significant in all these other conditions a whole lot of things like irritable bowel syndrome but now right through to emotions and so your gut biome your gut bacteria can affect your emotional state well this is where it really gets super exciting because at that time as you say uh, gastric ulcers were thought to be acid based and so you had antacids or you in fact had vagal surgery you cut the vagus nerve I forgot about that that was one of the surgical procedures in order so that the secretion of acid is decreased based on a model that it was acid imbalance that was eroding the lining of the gut or duodenum stomach now of course if you were to do that it would be medical malpractice in a short 20 years what we were taught as medical students has become obsolete and obviously updated now the microbe world this is the whole ecology and apparently if you weigh the amount of gut bacteria it amounts about 1.5 kilograms of gut which is the equivalent of the weight of the brain now if you consider how much science has been invested in neuroscience over the last 20 30 years for the same weight in the brain 1.5 kilo of neural pathways zero is known about these trillions of bacteria also 1.5 kilograms which if we're on a course of antibiotic 
totally has the power to disrupt the ecosystem. Now, all the climate change people have been focused on is the climate externally. Now it seems that both medicine and particularly psychiatry is starting to be interested in the ecosystem internally for the simple reason that not only do these bugs exert a balancing effect when they're in harmony, but, for example, after antibiotic course, which knocks off the good bacteria along with the bad bacteria in the rest of the body, the side effect, of course, is the... imbalance of the bacteria in the gut ecosystem now what's the big deal you may ask well excuse me what's the big deal (laughs) oh you may well ask now that was a moment of reflection i think (laughs) clearly i wasn't eating my own medicine and paying attention was everyone getting it so thank you for the question the big deal happens to be that these bugs are not just there happily eating the food that we ingest and breaking it down they are actually chemical neurotransmitters themselves and the lining of the gut if it becomes porous leaky actually breaks down how these chemicals from the bacteria neurotransmitters get into the bloodstream so we've got a whole revolution in conceptualizing what these so-called bugs are doing and in fact they're in partnership with us Mm. We are no longer us and the bugs. We are, in fact, in a harmonious equilibrium in the healthy state. Now, let's get back to the common borborygmus. Now, if we understand this science, no longer should we be thinking of tummy rumbles as mere noise, not even as just merely data about fluid and gas being stirred up by peristalsis, the rhythmic motion, But we might start to think of it as knowledge, as a symptom of what actually is going on inside the lining and inside the content of the microbacterial ecosystem. And this is regarded now as the new wave of potential research within gut-brain-brain-gut Um, research and so colloquialisms like you know I've got a gut feeling for something may actually come down to a lot deeper issues than just a throwaway line maybe our guts if we listen to it and I do mean listen now to the borborygmus not as noise but as information as knowledge that could be taken into account in the clinical consultation And to go back to our intro, therefore, to reflect back on our consultation, we might actually have to ask very seriously, did my tummy rumble during that clinical session? Mm, I'm leaving it, purposely leaving a gap for reflection. Everyone reflect now. Ready, set, go. Okay, over, done. (laughs) Hey, um, you know what? um, I mean, I guess the take, one of the take home messages though is that it's incredibly early days. And this is, you know, one of, you know, not that many things come along where you sort of sit back and you think, this is genuinely exciting. I mean, we're at the 1% stage, there's 99% of understanding to go. But you could, you could genuinely believe based on what's come out so far that in, 10 to 20 years time there'll be a whole new range of options to help people i mean um through this sort of knowledge through gut 
sort well, of manipulation. Ex- one example might be that you prescribed uh, bioactive agents for depression. I know, and, of course, you know, the nutritionists out there are going to be screaming, we've been telling you this yes, sort of stuff for exactly. ages, and it's true. And we have had nutritionists on the show talking about this. But I, I'm just saying, you know, it is ex- rapidly expanding, but what's also rapidly moving forward is the time. And I can say I've got 30 seconds to say my thank yous and throw to our wonderful friends in Einstein. Hey, Melis, thanks very much. Legendary stuff as usual. Capri, it's just a delight having you here. Thanks. And, um, Neil, thanks so much for coming in on this cold morning and, and telling us all about informed consent. That was great. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please jump on to Facebook if you're one of those people and like our page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.